your government doesn't feel you can be trusted with a powerful weapon, your thoughts. Encryption is a munition, and in the battle to keep your thoughts your own, it is your right to have military grade. This is Privacy Patriots, episode number 12, recorded, I'm sorry, episode (laughs) 11.5. This one goes to (laughs) 11.5. Recorded on July 22nd, 2018. The Patriots and its active members have received no legal instruments requiring us to turn over any information since our last podcast, dated May 20th, 2017. My name is Fong. And I'm EJ. Welcome to the Privacy Patriots Podcast, the official podcast of Restore the Fourth. All right, so we're here at the Hope Conference in New York City, uh, as we do biannually. And uh, actually, it was at Hope that we... uh, we birthed this thing we call Privacy Patriots, uh, the voice of Restore the Fourth. You uh, you may remember Restore the Fourth as a bit of a grassroots movement that came in the wake of the Snowden revelations in 2013. That following July 4th, we had marches in, in many major cities in, in the country, but since then we've actually coalesced into uh, our own uh, nonprofit. C, uh, 501c4 and um, we're still going after the lawmakers and uh, uh, putting our two cents in on uh, Fourth Amendment cases on the judicial level so with EJ and I here we're glad to have a perfect guest for today Theo Chino who's um, our chapter lead for Restore the Fourth here in New York City good morning and you've been a busy guy uh, at this conference so far. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> I, I said, you know, we only have an hour. We have to keep things concise. So let me get Theo on the show. <laughs> well, he did, good luck. He, he doesn't have a lot to say. <laughs> well, I do encrypt and I do vote. And yeah. I can talk about encryption and voting at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> and that will bring us into the blockchain. And by the way, <laughs> if you're on site, um, we still have uh, some of our famous I Encrypt and I Vote t-shirts available. Uh, we're uh, giving them away with any $60 contribution to restore the fourth. But uh, what's news here at the conference? I mean, uh, here's, I think, where the minds get together uh you kind of meet people who are kind of working on the the next generation of tools and movements to protect privacy like uh what are you guys hearing on the ground well what i picked up this year from this conference this this one and i didn't go to all the technical talk i went to the more political uh motivated talks so what I gather from this conference today was that a lot of people are interested in participating in the, in the democratic process. And they're talking a lot about voting and everything around voting. And what I'm trying to do is actually pushing not the voting, but the running. Mm-hmm. So people go and run. And explain other people how easy how easy it is to run for a position mm. to which they can be voted in. Yeah. And to jump off on that, you were talking to a gentleman yesterday who looks like he's running unopposed in his uh, campaign. So he is to win. 
Well, well, yeah, exactly. And so I discover I, I, I wanted to talk more about hacking, mm-hmm. and I, I decided to hack the Democratic Party okay. because I am in New York, and as well, because you're a political hack. Exactly, I'm a political. <laughs> I'm a total political hack. So I'm trying to get all all the people I can to run. Because, I mean, it was interesting when I heard Chelsea yesterday. Uh-huh. And she ran. But she was against a machine that is mostly opaque. Uh-huh. And she said it. The machine didn't say they were going to run against me. But they were very much not doing anything. And by not doing anything, it was you were feeling all the force of the machine against yeah. you. Yeah. And, oh, we're not going to get involved. We're not going to make a meeting. So suddenly a debate between two candidates doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. So her voice cannot be heard by those who carry that voice to the people on the ground. Mm-hmm. And so just by not having that meeting and not getting involved, they're pushing her away and they're pushing her message away. Mm-hmm. And she said that at a certain moment you could see that it's like it's a, it's, it's, it takes a tremendous force to go against the machine. Yeah. And hacking the Democratic Party is very simple. Take the bylaws of the Democratic Party where you live, read them, and it reads like source code. Mm-hmm. Source code. The meeting will take place on the third July, the third Friday of every month, uh, or etc. etc. And you read the rule one by one. Mm-hmm. When is the election? We will elect our leader on the fifth meeting, on the third week of the. <laughs> I mean, I mean, when there's a full moon and exactly. the stars align. Yeah. And all those rules are written in plain English. But it does read like source code, because it say subsection 3.5, refer to paragraph 5.6. So you go, it's, that's a go-to line. Yeah. Go to section 5.4. Yeah. And then it says, the election must be held in a hand ballot. Yeah. According to section 35-2, then go to there, and you realize, oh, there is no 35-2. Bug. <laughs> and then you can use that. And you use that, and that's what the loophole is. Yeah. Is all those little bugs in the in the law. And if you read the bylaws correctly and you use it as a computer code, you can hack it. And the first hack I did is run for county committee. New York New York is very is is special in a way that every block where you live there is a democratic representative yeah. representative that represent about 600 voters. Yeah. And that's what that gentleman we met yesterday uh-huh. was running in Brooklyn yeah. and he's running on a post because nobody knows about them. Yeah. And but to that point, um, you know, New York is uh, a wholly democratic town, New York City. And, uh, you know, so it makes sense that the Democratic Party is who you, Theo, would want to hack. But on the national level, when it comes to surveillance and privacy, we, we found that this is a, not really a partisan issue. Uh, a lot of people kind of expect that Democrats uh, would kind of naturally fall on the side of privacy and lack of surveillance. But we've seen... Where have you seen that? Did you see Cuomo yesterday? He's a Democrat. Exactly. Yeah. And he's pushing for camera, uh, face recognition on... Ca- it's literally pushing for the face recognition every time you go through a toll booth. Yeah. And not only face recognition, this is like whole 3D model of your head recognition <laughs> so they can't identify you from the back of your head when you turn your face as you drive through the tunnel. Exactly. And I mean, he's, and he's bragging about this. And he's bragging about it. Yeah. And the thing is, you're right, he's not a Democrat or Republican, but the Republican. Because we've had people 
We've had Democrats that and, and Republicans that have been threats to privacy, and then we've had uh, both Republicans okay. and Democrats in Congress that have, you know, put forth bills to protect privacy. Correct. And an RRD does not give any indication of where you stand on this. It does, well, that's why I was saying it's the hacking part. Because the same thing goes to the Republican Party in Arizona. Yeah. You can do the same hacking in the Republican Party in Arizona. You just need to learn how to do it. Mm. And that's what I'm trying to do at the conference is teach people, go hack your local political party. Yeah. And the reason I'm saying that, because, for example, in Hawaii, they seem to have the same system, a little bit like the New York system. And when they were pushing Bitcoin legislation over there, I reached out to my local me in Hawaii, uh -huh. and he showed up, and suddenly you could see the politician change the tune immediately when he said, I'm an elected uh, Democratic county committee member, and I am against the legislation you're pushing. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where the real, I, I discovered the, at last hope that that's where the real power is. Uh -huh. And those meetings are like run like actually uh, how's the show on NBC like uh, America Got Talent yeah that's much better organized than the way that political meeting takes place okay <laughs> so so it's a good point time to note that Restore the Fourth we are nonpartisan, and we have uh, you know I, I'd say on I'm a progressive liberal for the you know but uh, I'd say we have Folks on the other side of the aisle, typically more, uh, typically the libertarian persuasion. But like, this is definitely an issue where where uh, I'd say um, per, uh, I'd say there is no boundary. Yeah, there is yeah. no boundary. I mean, even the the old people. The way I convinced the old people in the club here, I reminded of CoinTelPro, mm -hmm. and I simply say, Cyrus Vance. When he was running for DA, yeah, I went in the, the club. That's the Manhattan district attorney. The Manhattan very anti-encryption. Terrible. Yes, he's the one who wants. He was, he's the one who's pushing the FBI to put the back door mm -hmm. into our cell phone. And I went to those club and I say, "Look at that man. You cannot endorse him because he's pushing CoinTelPro mm -hmm. with steroid." Yeah. And everybody goes, "What do you mean?" Well, now they don't even have to show up at the meeting. They can just turn your phone with the back door that he wants. Yeah. And everybody started looking at him and he started going red and like, uh-oh. Yeah. Let's yeah. talk about that a little bit more here. But you, you noted that you, you have been kind of going to politically oriented talks here at Hope. Yes. And although this is only my second Hope, you know, I imagine if we go back 20 years or so to when this started, this would be occupied, I'd say, 99% just by hackers and, and software developer types. Whereas it has grown into this larger community that almost needs a new name. And if, it, if we can yeah, like brainstorm for that, because it's not just a hacker community here. When you come to Hope now, you're meeting journalists, you're meeting activists, you're meeting, uh, you know, just privacy people, you know, who just value their privacy. They're not hackers. And I think it speaks to the fact that what you know, us nerds are doing in the world is the scaffold for the new society that's forming. So it makes sense that, you know, the, the new issues of society are happening, uh, you know, like the awareness of those issues are happening in this community here, in this building. You know, do you agree with that characterization? You have a good name for, like, what is this 
new community. Well, no, the, I, I, I think is. I would go further than that. Yeah. The community, the hacker community, has existed online forever. Openness, transparency, sharing of information was the groundhold of our community online. Mm-hmm. The only thing is now that community is going public, and now the public is discovering, and the politician too, that we need to be open, transparent, sharing of information, and allow for privacy. So, is there another name? No. Well, I don't know, but... I mean, we can name it whatever we want, or come up with names, but I don't know if the name's entirely important, as it's, we're the citizenry, and we have these rights, and we have these opinions, and they need to be heard, and we need to find ways to make them heard. And as you're saying, you know, you show up at your local thing, you run for something, you get your voice heard, you amplify voices, and you start hacking the system from the ground up. Yeah. And, is well, the thing is, if you think about it, GitHub is a big political thing. Yeah. Should we put a semicolon here on line 54? And after semicolon, should we have a space? And a return? No spaces after <laughs> semicolons. <laughs> but that discussion, those kind of discussion is what takes place on GitHub between developers when they go, yeah. they develop. We, we decide if we put an if statement here. Do we decide when, if we have a male, we have an if statement that says the other side, if he's married, is a female. Those are real decisions that we make as programmers that are politically charged mm. every time. So going into the real world is not that hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. simpler than people imagine. Well, what if we, you know, if we substitute, I said community, how about interest group? I think we are starting to form a specific interest group that's not getting their values represented in government. There's no one uh, who's yet to really lose their uh, shirt in Washington on privacy rights because so how do we kind of build our niche even more you know like I think a name is important because you talk about the LGBT movement or the gun rights movement uh, that's got you know like it's got a nice digestible label and up till now the best you could say is you know the hacker community or the hacktivist movement, but it really is a privacy movement. Yeah, it's a privacy movement. I mean, yeah, it, I don't think there is other name. I mean, we are yeah. for a privacy movement, but the Fourth Amendment is more than privacy. Mm. It's it's much more. So, it's, yeah, it, it's, it's psychological search. security in your own thoughts and your own being. You don't have to watch what you are doing. You can be you. Exactly. Um, I, I always describe it succinctly as just the, the right to be left alone until proven otherwise. Well, there is a bill, I believe, in Nebraska that was called like that. There, there yeah. was one line, right to be left alone. Yeah. Article 1, right to be left alone. <laughs> yeah. and Period. Full stop. <laughs> and that was it. And I, I forgot what state, but yes. And I think it's an important thing, but how do you describe it to politicians? What it means? Yeah. And how do you implement it? Well, I remember the two years ago, I met you here. Exactly. We were in the FOIA workshop, and I remember it was like I got to witness the birth of Theo Chino, the privacy advocate, because like the, I could literally see the, the light bulb on top of your head. You came out of that like, we've got to do something. We've got to make things happen here. What are we going to do? And then you... You did it. Like, the next two years, I followed you from afar. I'm up in Albany. You're down here in New York. But, like, 
Theo Chino, here, you're here, you're there, you're getting in Cyrus Vance's face. Like you were, you you made it happen over the next two years, and you continue to. So, like, tell me about that experience. Like, how did you go from that light bulb over your head to where you are right now? Well, the light bulb moment, as you saw, was when Aesthetic put us in a challenge. Remember, he was doing his Oakland privacy thing? Yeah. Mm. And he says, what are you guys doing in New York? And I'm like, yeah, well, we're not doing much here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're, we're Good point. Yeah. And I discovered privacy through Bitcoin. So it was two, in 2013 I discovered Bitcoin. And I'm like, that's super cool technology. I went into my little hole, left alone. And about six months later, they decided to regulate Bitcoin. And I'm like, hold on, time out, stop and I started fighting against the New York banking uh, regulator, yeah. NYDFS. Yeah, they and wanted you to get a bid license, right? Correct. They wanted to make the bid license. Was there some repeal of that recently? or Not no? at all. Okay. Oh, no. They, no, no. Well, the, some guy, we can talk about it uh, yeah. later on that one, but how to go from, you discover what it means to be a Bitcoiner and the implication of being a Bitcoiner. And then you say, wait a minute, your regulation is illegal. You are not you lose you first of all you're not having you don't have the right to regulate because you didn't do it right but New York City is full of loophole and he used one of those loopholes to get it through and I used the second loophole to try to stop him. And anytime you go into a legal matter, it takes time so you have to be patient. Mm-hmm. So we are three years, I lost the case, we're in appeal and we have to wait until September or oh. 2019. Knock on wood. Knock on wood. Thank you. Now, something interesting happened in New York City recently in that uh, the city council created a new position of a privacy officer. Uh-huh. And I wanted to get to that. You're right. Yeah. They changed the charter of the city of New York. Yeah. So ingrained in the DNA of the city of New York, there is a chief privacy officer that is where the task of that person is defined in the charter. So that is huge because the, the mayor or a politician cannot just go around and change those little rules like, oh yeah, we you can do more or you cannot. The, what the job of that person is in the DNA of New York City now. Yeah. And so that's what we did when Aesthetic and uh, it was not me alone. I mean, there was a lot of people behind the scene that worked tirelessly to get each step forward yeah and Cyrus Vance when you realize what Bitcoin is and what it is you realize what privacy is yeah and then from there you get realize it's important mm-hmm. and you realize why it's important the right to have the whistleblower because whether you like Julian Assange or not they got him through the credit cards yeah they're like we the know that power we, of the purse. The power of the purse. Yeah. And this is what the regulator want to do. They want to regulate everybody's purse so they can hold you. If you don't, you don't sing what they want you to sing, they'll say, well, we'll make you stop. Yeah. Mm. So who got named as the New York City privacy officer? So her name is Laura Negron. Uh-huh. We haven't met her yet. We're meeting her, well, by the time if you hear this podcast after Friday, the 27th of June, or July... We will have met her, but we're meeting her next Friday for the first time. We're going to have a meet and greet, and we're going to figure out where she stands on many issues. And to get back to, to the light bulb we had here, Richard Stallman was instrumental to give me three little rules. Three. Okay. And those rules 
allowed me to explain to the politician what data collection should be to keep something private. Okay, and what are those rules? Oh, I, I just read them to, to Richard upstairs. It, it doesn't involve free hugs, does it? <laughs> <laughs> no, it does not involve free hugs. But when you read those, those rules, they're so simple. Yeah. And Richard told us, when you frame the collection of data, you need to figure out what data must be collected for some important civic reason. Yeah. And should be published. Yeah. Those, the second thing is the data that must be collected for some important civic reason, but should not be published. Okay. Open data, open, uh, you know, the open data movement. Sure. Hmm. And data that should not be collected at all. Okay. So, like, we want to put things into three slots like that. Exactly. And would you say that, that that's going to kind of be your agenda for that meeting on Friday? We're going to talk about that, exactly, because that helped. That, I hope that will give her something to think about over spare time when she's trying to go over because right now she's going over the first iteration of what report she must make and all that so she's learning the rope of what yeah. do I need what the charter tells me that I need to do so we'll see well, let's take a moment and kind of let's go around the table and maybe we'll start with you EJ like a talk that was really pivotal pivotal for you here in terms of privacy rights or surveillance? Uh, there were a couple, but I think I would go with uh, last night I went to the talk titled And This Is It? Hmm. Uh, what went wrong with surveillance reform after Snowden, which was a panel discussion led by some people, including the chairman of uh, Restore the Fourth, was on it, Alex Math- uh, Mathers, uh, and some other people. And they were talking about basically how we have failed uh, since the Snowden revelations because that was a golden moment that really should have been an easy, uh, wide-sweeping victory and was not for many reasons. And they really talked about how uh, there are patriots and pariahs on both sides of the aisle. aisle. Um, And that... Uh, they were talking about, you know, how various pushes um, have sort of fallen apart and how in the effort to get privacy reform, there has been sort of a wide group of people trying to sort of like meet them halfway, which is one tactic, but it shouldn't be our job to come to them and be like, well, is this is this tame enough for you? Does this give you the power you still want, but we get a little something? No, we should be like, no. This is what we want. Come to us. Give us a deal. Um, so that. Uh, and then there yeah, was. It's almost like, uh, you know, guilty versus proven innocent. Yeah. Why should I have to come to you and, and kind of uh, help you? Like, this should be our default position yeah. is one of privacy. And then the other thing on there was um, somebody from, I believe it was. Uh, I forget Man in Progress? Yeah, Demand Progress, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. uh, well, two things. He told the story of out in California, there was a state senator who was sort of making a lot of anti-net neutrality noise. Mm-hmm. And people were like, hey, we really support net neutrality. Would you like please change your opinion? And he was like, nah. And I'm like, hey, 
we're your voters, change your damn opinion. And they're like, nah. And then somebody threatened that, hey, we're going to put up a billboard in your district that says you don't believe in net neutrality. And all of a sudden, his tune changed real quick. Mm-hmm. So there's this, like, rule of, you know, first you ask nicely, and then you ask a little bit more forcefully, yeah. and then you start doing things about it. Yeah. Um, and so I want to talk to some of the uh, Fight for the Future people, and there's a couple other organizations about, you know, maybe we start uh, putting up billboards that say... You know, so-and-so wants the government to see your dick pics. And, you know, just something really inflammatory. And you yeah. put it out there, and then they have to defend the fact that they want that power. Yeah. I mean, that, that's where we kind of have to, we have to start putting them on edge. Like, instead yeah. of us having to do damage control, put, make them have to do damage control. Yeah, exactly. Make it a third rail issue for them. So, uh, you know, like, the underlying, I did come away from that part of it, was Billboard. Because, uh, you know, at Restore the Fourth, on the, I'm on the board, the national board. And, you know, we're, especially now because um, we, we were lucky enough to, to get kind of in, in a, a good position after a fundraising, um, uh, a fundraising push offered by DuckDuckGo. Um, uh, so, like, we may, you know, might have the ability to uh, kind of put up billboards yeah. in certain districts and things like that. You know, now it's a matter of researching uh, where and who. Um, I mean, uh, many years ago, uh, shortly after I turned 18, a longtime friend of the family uh, who may or may not have been a member of the Socialist Party of America at some point, and there's whole jokes about that, but they told me to, uh, in a twist on the famous phrase, to be the trouble I wanted to see in the world. And I took that <laughs> a little too much to heart, I think. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I, I, you know, the thing that really stuck with me about that talk was the question of... Um, uh, I forget which panel speaker. I think it was Sean brought up uh, the question of like, how did you know we got lots of support and great momentum from the masses for Sopa Pippa fight. We got we have it for net neutrality, but like it's fallen kind of flat for surveillance. And um, you know, I think um, Alex and I really di- differ on this greatly. I really contend on my theory that. It comes down to stuff. If you threaten Americans, at least, I'm not going to say people, but in America, if you threaten people's stuff, you threaten to take away their stuff, then they, they, you know, go nuts. And uh, with SOPA and PIPA and with net neutrality, there's at least the, uh, the somewhat of a context of, like, you're not going to be able to play Netflix. You're not going to be able to use Reddit as you know it. And I think people really respond to that. Whereas the NSA listening to your stuff, to what you're saying, you still get to keep all your stuff. Which reminds me of a saying uh, uh, by Rachel Maddows, which is, um, uh, 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 um, oh, I forget the, uh, what do you, what do you call it um, when you have a fiefdom and lords and. Oh, um, oh, a feudal, uh, feudal, uh, feudal society. Yeah, there feu- you go. Feudalism with cable. Yeah. So you have this oppressive dystopia, but just with all the creature comforts of the previously free country. So, uh, you know, I, I contend that that's we we have to kind of contrive like how this is going to affect people directly, uh, you know, and make it less of a theoretical to kind of get people on board. I don't really have that brainstorm yet, but like getting, you know, I see any room, any time we get three heads like this together, 
uh, as an opportunity to brainstorm on that. How do you, how do you guys think we can kind of energize that kind of motivation of like? Well, what I was going to uh, say is, if you remember the testimony that Restorative Force gave during the post act here in New York City, mm-hmm. uh, where one of the lawmakers came up and is like, they're starting fighting with the NYPD, and the NYPD was like telling the lawmaker, "This is something you don't get." Mm-hmm. And the other one is, I think you is what you're not getting is that I don't want my stuff to be on the internet. Yeah. And as a lawmaker, if you want, if we give you what you have. You will be able. Everybody will be able to put what I have on the internet, and I don't want that. And suddenly, that talk of privacy from that lawmaker, he gets it, yeah. but there is no follow through because to have the follow through for the politician, he needs to have the grassroots movement behind him, knowing that there is a third rail. And so you hear them talking a lot, but if you don't put that third rail there. There is no energy for them to either grab it or get burned on it. Yeah, the pressure from below needs to be greater than the pressure, pressure from, from above. above. Yeah. And the NYPD has a great grassroots movement. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah no, it's no, called I'm the saying, union. Exactly, the union. <laughs> it's called and, the paramilitary force. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, there is the paramilitary force, but there yeah. is the union, and <laughs> that union is so is, is so literally. They say if you pass the post act, we are going to run candidate against you. This yeah. is the NYPD union saying that to the to the lawmaker. So, yeah. yeah. And we need to be on the other side, and and like you said, we need that grassroots move. Yeah. We need to galvanize them, and the issue you were talking is hard. To kind of continue the circle, I wanted to um, uh, note the talk that moved me the most was Barrett Brown, and um, you know we had talked about the Barrett Brown case on this show a bit, but you know. I had only really read his story uh, and hadn't kind of interacted with what he did on any level greater than that. And in fact, like, you know, I'd seen pictures of him and I, I think up till now I thought he was British for some reason, but he's the, he's this Texas Marxist. And like, I, I don't know, I, I can't help but say he's like cut from the same cloth as like a Bill Hicks or a Hunter S. Thompson, like this real gonzo type journalist I think the Hunter S. Thompson is a fairly appropriate comparison yeah Yeah. so I mean like in short if you're not familiar like he he effectively embedded he was a a, a journalist that embedded with Anonymous during some of their activities and hacks and uh, specifically against uh, pseudo state Sponsored surveillance uh, apparatus that was a uh, like a, a contractor, right? Yeah, Strat- it's Stratford. Like Stratford and uh, H.G. Gary, I think, yeah. was the other one. Which are these like companies that basically rent out state level surveillance apparatus to yeah. other people who are willing to pay, you know, fifty million dollars? Yeah, like the Amazon. Uh, yeah, Rick- yeah. But I mean, it's one thing yeah, to be a Amazon pr- recognition, their uh, recognition, image recognition technology that they're selling off to uh, the border patrol and yeah. police. But it's one thing to be like a, a progressive muckraker here in the Northeast. But there's something just so s- stubborn and like headstrong about a Texas liberal kind of doing this stuff. Like it, it, it just it, they all like it. The the uh, Blue fly in the tomato soup, right? <laughs> they, to call it like, I, sure. No, I don't. I don't. I don't know. I mean, he, 
in Texas, they, they seem to be a lot of leave me alone. Yeah. Don't well, that, mess with Texas. They yeah, tell yeah. it to you. Yeah. <laughs> They're pretty upfront about that. Yeah. yeah. Another I case mean, in point, it can kind of just go either way with this issue. Yeah, and, and I think that's sort of the mentality and the sort of cross-spectrum uh, nature of this that, you know. Yeah. Yeah, you encompass everybody. Yeah. yeah. But it, it almost like um, it was one of those moments this talk where, like, being at this conference and just being together with, like, such like minds for three solid days, like, you see this guy and you're just like, why can't... what? Why can't more people like this be in control of things? Like what? <laughs> it's just well. If they <laughs> but uh, they have to hack the system first. Yeah. yeah. So Theo, what was uh, your favorite talk? Well, my favorite one. Oh, I have to say I was the Chelsea Manning. I was mm. pretty much uh, at awe by by her emotion to try to go into the political process. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, we see the novice that is going out from jail, no intera- well, interaction, but and suddenly trying to bring change. And it, it, it broke my heart to know that the machine is so heavy and she suddenly got crushed by it without realizing it. Yeah. And that's the second time she's getting crushed. Yeah. Or technically the third time she's getting crushed. And now she has a bullhorn so strong, but at the same time, no politician will approach her because she's kryptonite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if we don't support her like all the privacy activists that we are and don't support her, no politician will ever talk to her. Yeah. She will always be the pariah. And she has such a strong message to give and such a natural one, but there is no one she she's alone carrying in the torch mm-hmm. and that broke my heart and that's for me uh, you know I'm a sub guy so so I like those kind of uh, moment yeah <laughs> yeah so I, on this show we typically do a lot of uh, news review uh, you know in the time we have we probably can't be uh, as uh, comprehensive as we usually are or so rambling <laughs> <laughs> But I, I, you know, I, I did want to at least bring up some good news in the last two weeks, uh, which we've been bragging about. Uh, Restore the fourth, which is um, the Supreme Court ruling on Carpenter versus USA, um, which uh, Restore the fourth had uh, a bit of a part in, because um, our volunteer legal team, um, we try to submit amicus briefs to any major Fourth Amendment case, and uh, which is kind of like. You, in legal terms, you are acting as a friend of the court, and you're submitting uh, kind of a third-party opinion to kind of uh, add to the deliberations of a case. And you know, we kind of uh, made the uh, the point that um, you know this case involved um, cell phone location data, and uh, we kind of made the point that um, there was. A reasonable expectation of privacy in this case, and um, to speak to that a little more, I actually got to talk to Alex Matthews about it. Here's that interview I had with Alex about Carpenter versus USA. So I'm happy to be joined today by Alex Matthews. We're both here at the Hope Conference in New York City. Uh, in 
Alex, you're our national chair at Restore the Fourth. And um, we had uh, an interesting Fourth Amendment case that came up before the Supreme Court about two weeks ago, I believe. This was... In, um, in the third week of June. Hmm. This was the Carpenter case, and we knew it was going to be a blockbuster from the beginning because it was the first time since 1979 that the Supreme Court had squarely confronted the question of whether metadata associated with phones should require a warrant before law enforcement could access it. Mm-hmm. I think for people to kind of grasp onto these cases, they almost like a story, and obviously every case has a, a backstory beyond just the, the metadata and, and, and the process. This was a case, in my understanding, was somebody who participated in a number of robberies of Radio Shack stores. Is that right? Yes. Ironically, he was in part stealing cell phones. Okay. So, and and to be clear, the, uh, the question in Carpenter versus USA was uh, they used cell phone uh, tower location data to uh, narrow this guy down, right? But they yes. obtained that without a warrant? They obtained it without a warrant um, covering well over 100 days of his movements. Mm-hmm. Um, and they used the locations of the cell phone towers to um, not exactly pinpoint his movements, but to give an accurate enough impression that it placed him near the location of four of the nine robberies. Yeah, we would and call that coarse location data, but um, well, how it's getting co- better every you know every day. They're getting better with that triangulating. That's right. Between and how towers. coarse the location data is depends largely on whether you're in an urban or a rural area. In uh. urban areas, the cell towers tend to be very closely spaced, and you can pinpoint somebody's location much more precisely than in a more rural area where it might be an ar- area covering several square miles. That makes sense. I mean, to, to really narrow down this picture for people – Basically, as you're moving about with a cell phone, your your device is kind of handshaking with any uh, cell tower that comes within range of, and it might come within. It might handshake with a couple that are nearby, and if you have at least three that have talked to, then they they could uh, effectively triangulate where you were at that given time. That's right. And so um, in, the, in the closing argument for the prosecution in the Carpenter case, they relied heavily on the cell phone tower data um, for, in making the argument that Carpenter should be convicted, and he was. But the Supreme Court overturned his conviction in a 5-4 decision, mm. um, re- um, ruling that the government needed to get a warrant for his the cell phone, the historical cell phone cell site location information mm-hmm. so they literally used uh his cell phone to catch a cell phone thief yes yeah so if if a warrant was not obtained to get this information uh, logistically do we know how they obtained it obviously it had to be through the carrier yes so they went to the carrier 
and they um, they submitted an information request under something called the Stored Communications Act, okay. um, which is 1980s era legislation that is very broadly used at present to obtain this kind of data. Um, so what they were doing was normal law enforcement practice currently in the United States, and the Supreme Court said that that normal practice was not okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do you know a bit more about the Stott Act and like uh, what it argued or provided? Um, essentially, it allows for an order for this kind of third-party communications data um, which does not require a finding of probable cause, which is the language of the Fourth Amendment. It requires a lower standard that it is relevant to an ongoing investigation. Okay. So that's a much looser standard and is very easy to satisfy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it almost boggles my mind. I mean, I'm, I'm one to think that just any information is going to be protected by the Fourth Amendment, but... Do you know what what does precedent say throughout the years? And, uh, and and I feel like as technology develops, it's almost like we have to make a new, find a new precedent for each technology and each layer of that that the communication method. Like, why? What type of things did the Start uh, Start Act allow police to obtain? that um, they wouldn't need a warrant for. The Stored Communications Act. Um, so it, um, it allowed for... So the Stored Communications Act allowed for police to obtain um, what we think of as communications metadata. So... Um, who you are contacting, who is contacting you, the duration of the call, the locations from which the call was made, the locations from which the uh, call was received, Mm -hmm. that sort of information. Um, When it comes to precedent, I think the difficulty that the Supreme Court had here was that the precedent that was relevant was from 1979 before the invention of the cell phone. Mm. And it related to whether police could obtain the metadata of a guy using a public payphone and who he was calling and who was calling him using a sensor that was located on the outside of the payphone. Now, that... Um, case called Smith v. Maryland is a hugely important one for in surveillance terms because the court ruled that um, that Smith had no reasonable expectation of privacy in his cell phone metadata. Smith was a stalker. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, the NSA then took that ruling and built a massive superstructure on top of it mm-hmm. because they said, well, if there is zero reasonable expectation of privacy that Americans have in, in, in one person's cell phone metadata, then there can't be any more privacy implications for millions of people's oh, the old cell phone efi- metadata. The old efficiency argument. Right. And, uh-huh. so, and so Smith v. Maryland was a key part of their justification for the universal or near universal collection of cell phone metadata on Americans' calls. Mm-hmm. Um, and what the Supreme Court has now done 
is to try to grapple with and in effect partially overrule Smith v. Maryland in light of technological advancements. Mm -hmm. Now, my understanding, um, another famous precedent that kind of came into question here was what we call the third party doctrine. You know, what was that kind of a distinct aspect of this case from the, the, the reference to the Stott Act? And could you kind of explain for those who might not be familiar with the third party doctrine what, what that involves? Well, that also comes directly out of um, Smith v. Maryland, but um, for, but goes back a little bit further. Um, basically, in the 1960s, you had a set of organized crime-related cases um, f- and situations where uh, the only way where you could b- break the mafia's vow of silence um, f- was if you had people going into conversations where crime was being discussed who were wearing a wire. Um, and... Um, f- and so the ruling said that mafiosos did not have an expectation of privacy in their conversations, even if there was somebody in the room wearing a wire. Hmm. And that was how the third party doctrine originated. Um, but by the time of Smith v. Maryland, the government argued successfully that because um, the um, records of who of who was calling whom were held by the cell phone company were generated by the cell phone company that they belonged to the cell phone mm. to to the phone company um even if they related to smith yeah and therefore all the government needed to do was to go to the cell phone th- to the phone company and not to not to smith in order to get the records and they didn't need a probable cause warrant to do that because the phone company wasn't involved with criminal activity. Mm. So ultimately, uh, you know, what we were hoping for in the Carpenter case is that we uh, would uh, that there would be an expectation of privacy in this context. And in my understanding, as we often do, restore the fourth and their volunteer legal team submitted an amicus brief that's correct and in my understanding maybe you can give a definition for the listeners that amicus brief is kind of a a a third party opinion uh submitted to the court about a a given case yeah an amicus brief means you're acting as a friend of the court you're trying to provide expertise to help inform the court's decision. You're not intervening on behalf necessarily of one party or another. Mm-hmm. Um, you're intervening on the court's behalf so that it can come to a better decision. Mm-hmm. And co- courts have rules for when you can and cannot submit amicus briefs. And this is something that Restore the Fourth regularly does. We weren't going to miss out on this case because we knew it was going to be a key one. And we argued that um, that historic self site location information was getting was not only sensitive personally sensitive but was getting more so over time as it delivered a more fine grained picture of where people were going and what people were doing mm-hmm. um, and we were arguing that the third party doctrine um, 
did not really make sense because the way that it was being treated under Smith was that as soon as you handed over this information to a third party, it did not have warrant protection irrespective of whom the th- who the third party was. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were arguing, well, actually, it really matters in practice in terms of people's reasonable expectations of privacy. That's the legal yeah. test who the party is yeah you hand over different information to your mom versus to a private company versus to the government yeah and so it really matters if by handing your information over to one party it will then be turned over to the government and you haven't necessarily consented to that yeah just by communicating at all now just to make the contrast if we go back to the original a precedent with the mafioso mm-hmm. there's somebody in the room with a wire so uh, you know had how did we make the contrast between um you know what you're providing to the cell phone company and what's getting generated through the c- cell phone company system and a uh, a rat f- or a fink wearing a wire <laughs> well um for th- there was a lengthy series of cases um, there were also cases relating to financial records um, and whether um, f- the government should come t- could come to a bank and subpoena your bank account records and whether if they did, they needed to meet a probable cause standard or whether something less would do. Mm. Um, what, um, what has happened here is that in the majority ruling, they have carved out a particular type of metadata, historical cell site location information, as having warrant protection and have said that this doesn't apply to other types of metadata, to financial records, to um, to um, contemporaneously collected mm-hmm. um, cell site location information. Um, they've really tried to cabin it to this particular type um, but that creates problems of its own because it's not clear as to why we should treat this particular specific kind of metadata differently from all other kinds of metadata. Mm-hmm. So what can you tell us a bit about the ruling? Uh, did we gather what uh, some of the the back discussions between the, the judges on the Supreme Court were? Well, we do, it took me over a week to digest the ruling, which is over 150 pages long. God bless um, you. <laughs> it, it, it is a complicated one. Um, so the majority ruling, as I say, says that there needs to be a warrant for historic cell site location information. Um, it also is a little weird in that it says that they expect that the situation where the prosecution would use historic cell site litiga- um, location information would be rare when our perspective is that this is actually quite a common thing for law enforcement to do. I think that mm-hmm. um, Chief Justice Roberts, who authored the opinion, was trying to sort of give the impression that this was not going to undo a wider way, array of current police practice, mm-hmm. when I think actually it, it may do, it may have a substantial impact of that kind. Um, there, there were some heated dissents um, Justi- Justice Thomas um, argued that um, Carpenter, according to current precedent, 
did not have a reasonable expectation of privacy in these third-party records. They were not his property. Mm-hmm. Um, and what Thomas cares about is property-based um, justifications for when something is a search or seizure mm-hmm. under Fourth Amendment law. And so um, he said they cannot be deemed his property, therefore there's no Fourth Amendment issue here. Boom, we're done. Car- Carpenter loses. Mm-hmm. Um, Gorsuch, who's the newest justice on the court, um, is a conservative with a more fl- technologically flexible approach to the Fourth Amendment. And his, his opinion was actually very interesting. It was a dissent because he was arguing and is, like Thomas, interested in a property rights-based notion of the Fourth Amendment. But he felt that there were ways that Carpenter could be said to have a property interest in his cell phone location information. Um, that the phone company had was effectively what he called a bailee, somebody who had been entrusted with those records okay. by Carpenter. An agent. Um, an agent of Carpenter. Um, uh, but that according to how these bailments were treated in the 17th and 18th centuries, it was very valid to suppose that there was a Fourth Amendment interest there. Um, he, was, he also cited to um, a, a ruling by the Federal Communications Commission that argued that in some ways cell site location information was the customer's property more than it was anyone else's property. Yeah. So that was helpful for his case. Um, What we see here is that there is a deep-seated division on the court between people who are looking to develop out the idea that something is a search if um, you have a reasonable expectation of privacy in it. Mm -hmm. Um, Those tend to be the more liberal members of the court. And People who say, no, that's unacceptably plastic and vague. Mm -hmm. Um, If we don't constrain it through some property interest, then um, there's no real limiting principle here. It's just like what judges think is reasonable at any given time. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it has to be tied to property. But the different conservative justices exploring different aspects of that property limitation and coming down on different sides of it. Do you think that speaks to somewhat of an American tradition or maybe even use the word fetish in America towards property rights that we kind of push this towards that direction? Or Well, it is true that in the original version of the Declaration of Independence, it wasn't life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Ah. It was life, liberty, and property. Mm. Um And it is true that in the context of Fourth Amendment law, up until the 1920s, it was essentially all about whether there was a trespass onto property. Yeah. Um, It was with the advent of electronic eavesdropping that um, over the course of the 1920s to the 40s, um, the court tried to grapple with that technological development, which did not involve a physical trespass. but which still seemed to implicate privacy concerns. And the hack that they did to try and get the Fourth Amendment to cover that was to develop this test of the reasonable expectations of privacy. So that's when that developed. Yes. So you spoke about um, how this case might affect police practices. 
In particular, I'm wondering, does this case inform or affect the uh, the Securus scandal of the you know from a month or two ago, where we had uh, a third party uh, company that was being given access to uh, the, the database from cell phone uh, providers of uh, cell phone location uh, information. And then in turn, they were going and selling it to law enforcement. And, um, you know, apparently, like, there's been enough backlash that uh, Securus is no longer getting the full access that they once had, that they were taking advantage of. But uh, on a legal standpoint, would this case and this ruling help end the practice that Securus was doing? Well, I think it complicates their business model immensely if um, individuals are considered to have a reasonable expectation of privacy in their um, historic cell site location information. Um, That suggests that if they are to continue with what they are doing, they would have to um, approach it as if that were true give people an opportunity to review that information to um, to correct or delete elements of it that they may want to be deleted mm-hmm. um, and then in that sort of after it had passed through consultation with the individuals for whom it was concerned then it could be passed on to law enforcement and I think they would be okay um, legally speaking but the but that is such an expensive proposition from their point of view then, <laughs> that they might well just not do that yeah. and try to provide other kinds of information. So it would be a logical resp- response on their part, for example, to not accumulate data of prior historic cell, fi- cell site location information, but say, okay, we're going to facilitate the provision of real-time cell site location information. Oh, um <laughs> Which this ruling does not cover. Oh boy! And that will be, you know, the next fight. Um, <laughs> Justice Alito. Whack a mole. Yeah, Justice Alito <laughs> in his next in his um, dissent said, you know, there's not really a limiting principle here. Um, K- Kennedy said similar, um, and this is just going to unle- unleash a flood of litigation over what does and doesn't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in terms of third-party records. And as far as that goes, I think he's right. I think that people are going to litigate it plenty. But the good thing is that Restore the Fourth, assuming adequate funding to do so, is going to be in there every step of the way Mm. and trying to advocate for people's ownership rights over um, over their data, for people having a privacy interest in their data, and for that to be protected from the universal all-seeing eye of the state. Well, uh, you know, it, it's good to have some good news for once. There's, there's all, uh, Even that week that this came out, there were uh, many other uh, rulings that came out of the Supreme Court that were bad news from my perspective, from the Muslim ban to a bunch of other things. So That's certainly true. I'm glad that uh, we got a win here, and um, you know, want to thank you for your work as well as the uh, the, the volunteer legal team that uh, put together this amicus brief and and perhaps uh, push things uh, over the edge towards our favor. So thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Already, 
So, um, yeah, we'll have that full interview. If you uh, check out our podcast in the next 24 hours, we should have that up. But uh, just a little bit more about uh, Carpenter versus USA. Um, kind of the, the, the two big legal principles that were involved there, um, uh, where it, you are trying to track down this criminal and you uh, effectively get their um, a log of their location when by uh, seeing what cell phone towers they connected to when. Um, whether that is protected by the Fourth Amendment Act, it kind of hinged on two precedents in, in past Fourth Amendment legal history, which was the Staud Act and uh, what we call the Third Party Doctrine. Which, um, which is bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> the, the uh, you know, I say, neat, you get a warrant for all the things. Like, why do we have to have this, like, pastiche of, like, okay, well, you can get this outright, you can get this with a subpoena, and then you need a warrant for this. Like, just, I feel like anybody's digital data. But, like, what the third-party doctrine kind of says is, you should have no expectation of privacy when you hand over your data to another, um, a third party. So, let's say you're, uh, let's say you're, um, um, they would argue that you're, uh, you're handing over your location data to the cell phone company by handshaking with their tower, and uh, I think. Um, in the in the one uh, dissent that was in the case, uh, they kind of went on property uh, basis of property rights, where they said like, "Well, this is this data is the property of the cell phone company. Like their systems are generating it, and it's not, uh, and it's just happenstance." Uh, which I I can't jive with, but. It's, it's also a problem of user interface. It's the explicit versus implicit uh, sort of agreement. Like when I use a cell phone, I'm not explicitly giving the cell phone tower my location. Yeah. They are implicitly getting that data because I have to connect to their towers, and there are multiple towers around me. And by math, you know, you have three towers. You can figure out where somebody is by drawing circles and finding where all three intersect. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not explicitly giving them that content. Uh, yeah. And that's a, a user interface problem, which is a whole separate issue from third-party doctrine and all this. But. Yeah. But then the Staud Act, um, as Alex explained, was uh, about um, – it, it had to do with uh, old mafia cases and someone wearing a wire. And I guess someone at some point made the argument that uh, they had an expectation of privacy from that wire. I guess <laughs> it was the early days of uh, electronic eavesdropping uh, – getting its first legal test but yeah so for more uh, for more on that check out um privacypatriots.org uh on and um we're pri- uh par- p-r-i-v uh are we uh, just just google privacy patriots yeah yeah <laughs> we're the podcast one yep um i can't spell either so we uh we do something every episode where we pick it's a special segment we do called Patriots and Pariahs. So we pick a, a one patriot and one pariah, one person who has uh, done something uh, great in defense of privacy rights, and somebody who has uh, at, presented themselves as a threat to privacy rights. So um, starting with our patriot, 
this episode that goes to Tiana Smalls, who's a, a woman who was uh, she was riding on a Greyhound bus. Mm, yes. Yeah. On June seventh, um, she, uh, she was riding from Bakersfield, California, to Las Vegas. As the bus approached the, uh, a checkpoint at the Nevada state line, Ms. Small said the driver made an unusual announcement. Quote, we are getting boarded by Border Patrol. Please prepare to show your documentation upon request. Ms. Small immediately reacted. According to the description she posted on Facebook, she stood up loudly and said, quote, this is a violation of your Fourth Amendment rights. You don't have to show them shit. <laughs> Unquote. She then used Google Translate to repeat her message in Spanish. Murder. <laughs> Reassuring the Spanish-speaking woman sitting beside her and probably countless other fellow passengers. Border Patrol agents boarded the bus and started to ask the passengers for their, quote, documentation. Ms. Smalls stood up and again shouted, You have no right to ask me for anything. This is harassment and racial profiling. We are not within 100 miles of the border. So these agents have no legal right or jurisdiction here. Ms. Small's simple and courageous act of resistance was enough. The Border Patrol agents, realizing that they would face an uphill battle, immediately retreated, telling the driver to continue on. Bravo. Bravo. That's that's great. It's uplifting. So, Theo, I, I have somebody in mind for the pariah, but I know you've already got... Always got new people you're mad at. So, like, if you got, if you want to pick somebody, we'll we'll go with your choice. No, okay. Uh, not this week. I, no. I, I, you're feeling I have, nice. I, my plate is full for this week. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I, I, I I'm well, let's go with Cuomo. I mean, hell, yeah. yeah. I mean, Governor Cuomo. Yeah. Is reiterate is, that for us. Is uh, uh, pushing Andrew Cuomo, our great governor here in New York. Is pushing for facial recognition of a toll booth or yeah. anywhere in... Well, actually, they took away the toll booth, and so they're the electronic toll booth, and now they want to facially recognize whoever goes through the toll booth. Yeah. And tunnels and bridges and... And highways. And highways. Anything that has uh. a toll booth. Mm-hmm. A virtual one now. Um, yeah, and, and it's... Sorry. No, and so... Uh. You get, uh, for me, he gets the power with the week, and... Uh, can, no, we don't do politics here, so... <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he is trying to sort of position himself as the sort of left liberal candidate, you know, and opposition to uh, other forces, so to speak. And then uh, he has this opinion that, you know, you know, we should have this wide pervasive surveillance and he was on record in the announcement of this bragging about the fact that like you know if somebody turns their their head to the side to avoid these cameras you can identify them by their ear like uh, and it's true but it, yes it's it, true and it's it's a reality and it's scary and it is not in any way progressive or forward thinking policy to have <laughs> so i hear there is other candidate running for the same slot so pick another one yeah. <laughs> I hear there is great woman nowadays running yeah. uh, so uh, with that to uh, I think we have a couple more minutes don't we yeah yeah no I was going to say ah. with that to Tiana Smalls uh, thank you yes and to Governor Cuomo fuck you redacted <laughs> oh I'm sorry we cannot, uh, no, no we're in New York City I think profanity is allowed <laughs> oh yeah I mean, is the FCC listening? <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, so. 
so, well, I don't know. Where do you guys think you are going to uh, head from here? Like, uh, you know, I find these conferences very rejuvenating, uh, a kind of a reboot uh, kind of your mojo, your activist mojo. Like, I mean, uh, yeah, once oh, you yes. catch up on all that sleep that you incurred. <laughs> <laughs> what, what's next for, we'll start with you, Theo. What, what do you got planned once you get out of here? Uh, from the booth? No, <laughs> from bed? the comp. Oh, uh, the comp bed. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean in the next year. You know, in the next year. And when you go back out into the world, having you know, uh, re- kind of recharge your your well, the motivation abo- here at Hope. So the abolition of the bid license will be something going on for me. Uh, also, getting more activists for restore the fourth here yeah. in New York because uh, there was there is a lot of people here in New York and we need to reach out to them. And they need to know that if they send us an email, we do re- we do respond, say hello, and at least we'll get from there. Yeah. Do you have any inspirations, EJ, that you've come away with? Yeah, I have a. There's a couple projects I'm sort of working on up in the Albany area. There's a, a thing with the. Uh, they swapped out the, the parking meters, and they're now collecting more data without offering any different functionality. You know, they're now all of the parking meters in downtown Albany ask for your license plate number, but uh, they don't do anything with it, seemingly. And so uh, to follow that rule of you ask nicely, then you ask a little more firmly, and then you do something about it, yeah. I send an email asking nicely, like, hey, you know, I noticed this change. Can you provide a little bit more information, which they kindly ignored? So I'll ask a little bit more, and then I'll probably send a, a FOIA request, which is yeah. um, the Freedom of Information Act, which is a powerful, powerful tool. Uh, for anybody who wants to know what their government is doing. Mm. Uh, and then other than that, probably talk to some people about billboards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, tree <laughs> billboard in Albany. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a, yeah. Tree billboard on each yeah. entrance of Albany. Yeah. So, so something I've been meaning to catch up on is, um, you know, in, in Albany, New York, we uh, recently deployed uh, body cameras on mm. the police, which, you know, on the onset... I think everybody was kind of excited about because, you know, that there is always that potential for accountability uh, when the officers are wearing these. You know, it can kind of go both ways, but um, I, I, you know, it, I initially saw it as one of those cases where, you know, I want to see more cameras on our officials and less on our citizens. <laughs> you know, out of the two, I'll take that. But as you know, they're accounting citizens and. Uh, you know, um, I'm on a community policing board up there, and as we started kind of digging into it, it gets very complex. You know, po- forming the policy of like how the camera is going to be used, and but you know, the the scary part to me that I want to chase after now is in terms of the vendors of these cameras. Um, you know, Axon uh, is the vendor that we used, uh, formerly known as the Taser Corporation. Um, so they're, uh, you know, they're faci- providing the the cameras that the officers wear, but also the back end systems that store the footage. And uh, just this week, you know, I had been already bringing this up uh, preemptively because, uh, you know, we've seen by, uh, but the question of biometrics kind of came to a head in the last couple of weeks. You know, I had been already talking about it, and they said. You know, people were telling me you're you're finding problems where they are aren't. But 
Also, my understanding was that in the initial contract, they said that they were not collecting it and they had no plans to collect like yeah. biometrics. So number one thing I want to do is, you know, I want to try to get with APD and examine these contracts, especially because there were some questions even before um, last week's development uh, in terms of what the contract said about um, whose intellectual property the the footage belonged to. So I want to see that. But if the most recent thing I'm referring to is that Axon put forth a patent um, for a system that would uh, not only have biometric facial recognition off of body officer body worn cameras, but it would in real time uh, query databases and cross reference for warrants and things like that. And I think um, that uh, is our worst case scenario in terms of being on in a, a perpetual lineup or this this kind of database dragnet. Uh, you know, just like the toll booths. Mm. Um, but, you know, like I, I'm trying to explain this to other members of my community board who are much older and not, you know, uh, as first in how this all works. And I think I want to break it down into three tiers because one thing I discovered, like not all facial recognition is is uh, uh, alike. Some so, of it is racist. <laughs> well, yeah, there's that problem too. But I mean, like there's... There's three tiers, I would say. There's, you know, facial recognition of, like, this is a person's face with eyes and ears. Oh. All the way up to, um, you know, like, you, you're almost making an intelligent bookmark on the footage so you can help find it. You know, you're not identifying anybody. You're not hitting any database. That would be, to me, tier one. Tier two would be, we have this footage. We think a serious crime has been committed. So we want to do manually do a database search, but that's targeted. That would be tier two to me. What they're describing here is tier three, and that's scary because that's that's total big brother, and I hope to make sure that that doesn't come to my town. So I just uh, had my light bulb moment listening to you actually right now. Yeah. And we should go talk to the Free Software Foundation, and right. I'll explain right. that to you in person. Thank you for that light bulb moment. Wow. All right, and with that, I think we're almost out of time. So, yeah, uh, uh, yep, they're coming for us with a curved hook. Uh, I think. <laughs> Bring the, uh, well, so this has been uh, episode eleven point five. Eleven point five. This one goes to. Uh, hang on, I have to get my <laughs> script unlocked. Jesus, um, that's no. That's the. So this was a co-production <laughs> so, between Radio Statler. Uh, this has been episode eleven point five of Privacy Patriots. The official podcast of Restore the Fourth. Thanks for listening, and we we hope to uh, have you join us for our next episode. And a big shout out to uh, Radio Statler for hosting us here at uh, the Hope Convention. Oh, these guys City. are awesome! Thank you. Yeah. Head over to www.privacypatriots.org where you can get further connected with us on Reddit, Twitter, and Facebook. And remember, keep watching the Watchers and stay tuned as we give you the information you need to keep your information your own.